Welcome to episode 100 of 200. <laughs> nice one. I'm glad we, we brought that gag back. I just, um, <laughs> I'm so happy to be able to do that. But honestly, it's been, it's been uh, real great um, doing New Zealand international news for coming up on three years now. Uh, and we just wanted to start Jesus. this podcast by saying a huge thank you to everyone who supported us during that time, uh, who's listened to us, who's shared uh, our posts far and wide, who's engaged with us on social media, uh, and who's given us money, who's donated to us. Because without all of that, uh, we wouldn't be able to keep doing this. And or uh, we wouldn't care enough to do it anymore. Because <laughs> you really do need at least some small amount of attention um, if you're creating content. And, and the show, um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll end this uh, self-backstopping uh, after a while and, and move on to Labour's self-backstopping. But, you know, the show has grown, and especially in the last uh, year or so. Um, and I think it's, it's going to keep doing so, whether it's at some exponential rate or some gradual rate, I don't know. But the reason, the only reason that is, is, is because people have stuck with us uh, and want to hear our thoughts and opinions on what's happening in New Zealand and around the world. And so, um, but, you know, we really appreciate that because we, without that, we are just talking to a void and we probably would have shut up shop, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, if not longer. So, so very much appreciated. Today, yeah, can we... I chime in as a guest and listener? Oh yeah, <laughs> please. Absolutely. Um, just, just want to say um, great work on getting to a hundred. Um, and also it's, it's just really important to have like independent media that's, you know, political and kind of not afraid to be so, um, and actually has a position. Um, so, yeah, um, great work. You're very much needed. Um, here's to uh, 200. It is called one of 200 for that reason, right? And that's exactly why. That's yeah. the only yeah. reason it's called that. We plan on getting to 200 episodes and then just... And then, and then that that's it. The just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like a BBC kind of show. <laughs> it goes, you know, but it doesn't... Definitely not us saying it's welcome, like, you know, say an American sitcom. We're just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to... 11 seasons. 200, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. The arrogance that we'd start out with saying we're going to do 200 episodes. That, that level of arrogance is pretty astounding compared to BBC, you know, but we'll take it. We'll do it. Yeah. We're halfway there team. So if you, yeah. if you hate what we're doing, this is also a moment to celebrate. Sit back and think <laughs> that if you've survived this long, there's only that much to go. You're halfway there. Help us get there faster by yeah. sending us money so we can produce more um, mm. at, at a quicker rate. That's true. If you hate the, us, show. the only thing you can do is give us more money. <laughs> and more support yeah and and if i sound better this episode it's because you know i now have a mic so thank you <laughs> to the fans for helping me sound crisp and clear for, for real, that is, we, we are not a uh the, people will be shocked to learn this. we are not a a well-funded uh outlet uh and so uh this is the kind of like uh, momentous uh things that happen when when we do get a little more financial support we're able to do things like uh, get a mic for Justine. Uh, 
<laughs> or, you well, know, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe, maybe a headset for all of us will be the, uh, the next step. I don't know. The, the world is yeah. our oyster from here. Yeah. I, I did ask the elders of, you know, Zion to cut me a check. <laughs> they just, they're so slow. The bureaucracy, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's um, what people often uh, forget about the, the, the conspiracy uh, you know, is, is yeah. that uh, there's a lot Huge of money out there, but they're just not such a big bureaucracy that it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. logged yeah. in. Yeah. You know, like the call centers always you know, ring you back. <laughs> just... <laughs> <laughs> they, they have to send their, um, they have to send their, their tech through those uh, Gringottian tubes. So it takes a long time to get from yeah. uh, Israel down to New Zealand. Yeah, I'm waiting for the bats. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> hey, that's not what uh, this podcast is going to be about though. Um, Thank God. As Branka said earlier, um, we'll probably move on now from slapping ourselves in the back uh, to Labour slapping themselves on the back because we've almost by pure chance managed to line up our hundreds episode with uh, the Labour budget release uh, last Thursday, Thursday just gone. Um, and that's what we wanted to cover today. And on the cast, uh, you heard his voice moments ago saying uh, I wanted to pitch in as a guest and listener. Uh, we've got Paul Calland back to talk about the budget with us. Welcome to the cast, Paul. Thanks for having me, guys. My favourite topic. Which part of it is your favourite? I don't know. I'm just a nerd from the, for the numbers. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it may not get almost anyone excited, but stuff talking about, like, the fiscals, you know, gets me excited so so someone someone's gonna enjoy it i guess and i have to say uh, i have to say if if you uh have not followed uh paul on twitter yet um uh and and he'll tell you tell you his his handle in a second you you should do it because i always enjoy whether it's the budget or any sort of paper that gets put out paul you just go to his twitter feed and he's he's taken out select little bits uh and and uh both highlight it and offers great commentary it's always very you know i always get a lot out of reading uh paul's twitter feed uh, whether it's the subject or others so so definitely go go check him out uh whether you want to give your 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 handle now at the end of the show we will you know you can do both even you could you could do right now well th- thanks bronco it's um it's paul k underscore 1986 and i really need a new handle because <laughs> it's not it's not the kind of one that you'd you know that you'd say i needed some kind of snappy one i guess no and i can already probably commit identity theft against you uh using that handle i i, I <laughs> <laughs> mine is my name so um you know you're you're a step better than mine uh paul hey did you want to kick us off paul with a um a breakdown of the uh, hot button issues coming out of the budget because there were a few um, some led by labor um, and the what seems to have been the initial PR push they had prior to the budget releasing uh, and then some led elsewhere uh, quite a bit coming out of uh, progressive uh, analysts and commentators like yourself uh, pointing at, at different bits of the budget um, that don't get quite as much um, coverage I guess but yeah, what's what's caught your eye? Um, well, I mean, I guess the the big the big thing is the benefit increases um, that came in, and, and there was you know there started to be a bit of I guess um, speculation that that was going to happen um, you know some days before. But just before the cast, I was thinking back to the one we did a few months back when um, Grant Robertson 
launch the budget policy statement and that kind of sets the direction for what's going to be coming up in the budget and at that point there was really no sign um from what i can recall anyway of, of these benefit increases happening so i guess that's um a, a bit of background um mm. you know context to I, I don't know exactly um what if anything changed like obviously a lot of these major decisions tend to be made you know quite far in advance um, uh, yeah i thought it was just by rolling dice <laughs> well i don't know sometimes we we might we might think that with um with some governments but i don't know um but anyway that that one the the benefit increases was the big kind of headline um you know headline announcement from the budget um and and basically the the kind of the facts on that are um they've increased benefits up to 55 dollars um per adult i think it is um which uh labor say meets and in some cases exceeds the welfare expert advisory group recommendations um and i'm sure we'll, we'll go into that in a, in a bit more detail but um so so that's that's one of the announcements the other one i think there was um quite a large amount of money uh maybe three to four hundred um million dollars uh dedicated to maori housing um so that was another kind of headline announcement um quite a lot going into health and education um, but i think mainly um to basically um fund the 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 sort of restructures of the health and education systems that um labor have put forward recently so um on the health side that's to restructure the dhbs and, and kind of reform it into a single health body and establish the, the maori health authority um and on the education side um there was the reform that they announced some time ago now actually i think um reforming the tomorrow schools program um and and i think there's quite a bit of capital in there as well for uh you know repairing and, and maintaining infrastructure and things um but those those were kind of the, the main things and i guess this is all also in the backdrop of uh a week or two ago now um labor announcing the um pay freeze that uh they they don't like to describe as a pay freeze but it is a pay freeze um on um uh, a cut even maybe <laughs> well yeah a real terms cut actually that's correct on um, public servants who, who earn over sixty thousand dollars so um yeah that's that's kind of a bit of a background in the headline headline stuff but as you said Carl, there's also been quite a lot of commentary uh, particularly in, in analysis particularly around the benefit increases and you know um the i guess the, the positives and the uh you know in some cases how they haven't actually Mm. been sufficient really um so yeah yeah uh, so some i guess some positives it was certainly more than what i was expecting to be honest and and like i said earlier back when we were um reviewing the the budget policy statement uh i felt like that presented quite quite a clear message that you know there wasn't going to be significant investment um in sort of operational uplifts things like benefits and um you know sort of salaries for, for public servants and teachers and nurses and things like that it, it seemed very much uh focused on paying down debt um getting to surplus as quickly as possible um and the pull back a little bit on that it's still not uh that you know that they're still paying down debt um you know reasonably quickly um and you know looking to reach surplus a little bit sooner than what they were but 
not quite as um, conservative as, as what I was expecting before. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary, Paul. Um, of yes, that's um, the cast. Yeah, okay. my, my instincts. Are guys, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I, I don't think we've done an episode, or certainly I haven't been on an episode um, since the the pay freeze. And um, you know, I've been racking my brain, sort of trying to understand the political kind of strategy or intent behind the move because it seemed so completely um you know just it was dumbfounding in in many ways and i think a lot of people were trying to play six-dimensional chess with it and sort of trying to analyze what the government was trying to signal um and and i and i do think there's something to the idea that they decided to increase core benefits but still wanted to maintain some kind of image of fiscal um, responsibility, so-called, you know, quote-unquote fiscal responsibility. And so that was their way of balance because, you know, um, in politics, it's all treated as this, like, zero-sum game. And I think it was a very cynical move because the pitting of, like, you know, people who are currently in employment and unemployed workers against one another as, like, you know, um, groups that should be in conflict was it, – it's, it's actually very damaging to – to the whole thing, really, um, to the labor movement. And so um, I'm deeply, and also the way that, you know, it was pitched as well was exactly that. We have to help the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable workers, the most vulnerable. And of course we do, um, but, it, you know, the, I mean, it, it's nonsense that, like, it's a zero-sum game and we can only help one person. Mm. Only help one person at a time. Yeah, the, the idea set forth by the government is that there is a very limited amount of resources. Um, uh, the, the, the government has these strict uh, debt targets and therefore there's only so much of the, the pie that can be shared out. Of course, there's, you know, there's no way apparently to top up uh, that pie. You can't sort of tax more apparently, even though there's... Can't make more pies. Wealth in, yeah, even though wealth inequality is, is, is terrible and getting worse in New Zealand. No, that's out of the question. But, you know, the, the way it's presented by the government is there's only so much. And so, yes, in this case, we're giving a, uh, more now to the most needy. Uh, everyone else will have to wait. Sorry, public sector workers. At least we're not freezing your pay. Um, I mean, I, yeah, it's interesting what, what you say, Paul, about the fact that... Um, this wasn't signaled in advance. Um, you know, traditionally, you might say, if you're thinking in the in the eighth dimensional chess version of politics, well, you know, this is they want to set low expectations and so therefore exceed them very easily. Uh, that that could be a possibility. I have no idea. I have no uh, keyhole into what is exactly happening behind closed doors at the Beehive. Um, on the other hand, um, to me, it also seems very plausible that after this huge unforced error with the uh, the pay freeze and having to backtrack on that um that was pretty damaging to them um in terms of their public image as this kind uh kind government but also a government that that you know is running the ship well and is basically sort of managing everyone's expectations in a very capable way um and the government sort of had to shore up had to do something dramatic to to make give itself that 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 cred that had lost, um, not just after four years of inaction, but, but um, particularly after that move. Um, so I think that might be part of it. I think the other thing that we shouldn't discount is, is um, you know, stuff like that, that, that we've been doing on here, uh, stuff that's been happening on the streets, uh, stuff that, that you know, uh, Auckland Action Against Poverty and other groups like that have been doing for a long time, mm. really criticizing and pressuring the government. Um, it, it's, it's shameful that it took this long and this much effort to get them to 
raise benefit rates um, to a point that's still not really fully adequate when you take into consider the, the uh, consideration, the, 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 the rising cost of living and everything. But I, I do think that that had an effect. I think Karma Cipollone actually said that, um, you know, the, the pressure from the outside helped her to make the case uh, to the rest of cabinet to, to do this. Um, and, and I think, you know, I don't know if that's going to be the, the main, the main factor that led to it, but I'm sure that there is some truth to that. So I think this is an example that where this government can be pushed somewhat. Um, unfortunately, we're also seeing that the limits of that are pretty, pretty stark because this is it. I think this is, maybe you guys would disagree, but I think this is going to be the big thing that they do for the, the left, quote unquote, or, you know, Labor's base. And then after this, it's going to be, you know, strictly, strictly the vegetables from here on. Well, this is actually something that um, Paul and I were briefly talking about on Twitter today. Uh, and that's around the way that the benefit raise has been split over two successive years. Um, and one of the things that I said, and, and a couple of other people have said now as well, is that we can't figure out why they've chosen to split it uh, and not just, if, if they know that this much mo- they need this much money for our most vulnerable, for beneficiaries, why not give it to them all at once? It's all in one um, budget, right? Uh, and uh, I really do, until someone asks the question of Grant Robertson, I will just have to maintain that it's for a double media hit, that you know they get to give, give some now and then give some in April next year. Um, and have two really good, look, we are socialists, uh, stories um, in the media. Um, if I'm being incredibly cynical, I think they've got something else lined up for um, March. Uh, that's not particularly great. Maybe they're going to freeze someone else's pay. I don't fucking know. Um, and then follow that up with this good news story. But I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and mm. yeah, especially knowing how they tend to operate in the media um, and, the, and the people pulling the strings there. That's the kind of thing that I would expect them to do. And I'm not like, not as a like, oh, look, look at these Machiavellis because it's obviously like a really easy little fucking thing to do. The issue is that media often just buy straight into it. But also that, but also that literally is Machiavelli. That is a Machiavelli thing. He, oh, no, he, I just he, think... wrote, he wrote doing one, you know, when you do cruelty, <laughs> sure. when you do, cruelty do it all at once. When you do kindness, do it slowly so people remember every increment of kindness. That literally is Machiavelli. So you, you don't have to be Machiavelli, but it helps. Right? Sorry, Machiavelli yeah. in, in, um, in mechanism, but I don't think necessarily uh, in terms of actually being... Uh, oh, of course. It's not, it's not hard. Smart it's not complex. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it doesn't take a strategist, yeah. really. Um, but I, I, it's, I it's really interesting what, um, what Paul was saying before about the, like, the Grant Robertson kind of repudiating... Um, the previous Grant Robertson incarnation, right? We look back just one one election ago and two elections ago, and Grant Robertson was running with this incredibly fiscally conservative narrative, right? And now he's trying to reinvent himself as a kind of like a labor labor finance minister for the first time. It seems like he's saying, actually, maybe we need to prioritize people over these things. But it's interesting that he's been allowed to get away with doing that, whilst, as Paul said, still paying down debt like fast and faster than anticipated, right? So it depends, like, is our imagination so captured by political reality of the last decade and the last two decades 
that we're unable to connect to kind of the wider realities of the world and market flows and, you know, the structures and amount of capital that we have, because it, se it seems like that's how disconnected we are. Like all of these people throwing around words like, oh, this is huge. These, these numbers are enormous and incredible, but like compared to what, right? In sure, in the post euthanasia era, like some of these changes are, are radical compared to that tiny window of possibility. But if that's not, if you're comparing it to what's needed, it's a different question, right? Yeah, and, and also, I mean, this is something that really frustrates me about um, the mainstream media and how they report on, on budgets is that they always uh, talk about it in nominal value. So they'll say billions of dollars, X billions of dollars for this. And then, of course, billions of anything is a lot. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, whenever they're talking about that, then they throw around those, you know, hyperbolic kind of adjectives like you're talking about, Philippus, and, you know, massive, huge investment. And, and you know, whenever they're talking about debt as well in particular, you know, this massive mountain of debt that the government's got, they're always exaggerating this. But actually, when you when you look at um, the amount of debt that we've got as a proportion of GDP, um, you know, it's it's going down. Um, and like after after the next couple of years, uh, in any case, because the government's had to borrow a lot of money for COVID. Um, but the, the trajectory is, is the same. And when you compare our sovereign debt with other countries, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very low. Um, so it's a very low risk proposition. But anyway, I don't want to nerd on about debt. I wanted to come back to a couple of points that um, were raised. Firstly, why the kind of question that you're talking about, Branko, why have the government decided to do this now? Um, and I think you're, you're right. It is um, based on basically the pressure that's been put on them um, to raise benefits. Um, you know, it's been an ongoing, uh, you know, excellent campaigning basically by um, outside groups like AAAP or the National Against Poverty, Child Poverty Action Group, um, also, Green Party politicians um, have been pushing this for a long time, um, and in the Māori Party as well, since they've um, got re-elected in particular, and, and they ran on on this too in 2020. Um, and so, and, and actually, a lot of those groups um, have um, forced a change in the public conversation. Uh, you know, uh, I, I remember, and this is uh, this is kind of anecdotal, but I remember. And leading up to the 2017 election, um, and you know, when Matilda today gave her speech around mending the safety net, uh, and and just the the visceral reaction from the mainstream media that came her way, um, things seem to have changed quite a bit since then. You know, and and she really kicked off that conversation, I think, in the mainstream, and, and um, deserves a lot of credit for actually bringing this um, bringing this issue up and keeping it. Uh, keeping it going um, because people like um, Duncan Garner in the media, even, you know, yeah. in, in the lead up, at least, I mean, he's, he's been a little bit um, uh, sort of insulting to, um, you know, AAAP campaigners over the last couple of days, but he is even, you know, kind of on, been on board with benefit increases for some time. Um, and that is a massive shift when you've got right wing, media commentators, when you've got national who won't even say that they're doing this really weird balancing act where they're trying to say that, uh, we won't reverse the changes, but you know, welfare dependency, blah, blah, blah. And they're doing a bunch of fear mongering around that. So, you know, the, the public conversation has shifted massively. And, and I think that labor felt like they had to respond to that. And, and 
also that they had to do it to you know at least be able to say that they met the welfare expert advisory group requirements because if they didn't if they only did it 25 30 dollars increase um they would have got absolutely slammed for it um and and i think you know they've, they've done really the minimum of what they needed to do to kind of satisfy that call um and i think that the sort of the staggering of it as well like you're talking about kyle has you know um given them the, the cynic anyway the cynical take would be that uh it's, it's given them some extra time so next year they can say oh well look you know we're increasing benefits again by sort of 35 dollars or whatever it is but actually that's not a new commitment it's something that they committed to some time ago so um but you know maybe graham robertson will say oh well you know we need to balance we need to have a good balance of of everything and so we can't do everything straight away and and blah 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 like he normally does <laughs> um, yeah Speaking of Duncan Garner, uh, I actually, I've not paid that much attention to his, his position on this um, because I just assumed that it would be reflexively anti-beneficiary and anti-doing anything. Uh, but actually, I, I did have a read of uh, a column he put out once the budget came out. And, and yeah, I was surprised that even Duncan Garner, as you say, was saying stuff that a lot of people, uh, anti-poverty ca campaigners and, and people on the left more generally have been saying for a long time. Uh, but I just love Duncan Garner's tone of voice when he writes is, is just one of my favorite things. Like uh, corporate businesses today, shh, you've already pocketed the wage subsidy maybe three times at a total cost of $30 billion plus. Homeowners, don't you dare moan. Your house earns more than you do. Think about it. It does. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, the way he ends it, he goes, um, throw in some emergency housing measures and boom. There's your B-Day done and dusted. And that's the end. He's solved it. He's, he, <laughs> and what I love about it is it, it, there's no real commentary on what's happening. Um, it's just sort of laying out uh, broadly uh, in the most simplistic terms possible what, what the government has announced and then he's just sort of agreeing with it. But, but as you say, Paul, that itself, in, in itself is, is actually a pretty big signal uh, at the way politics uh, has shifted um, over the course of COVID hasn't shifted as much as we would like, um, as much as many people would like, but it, it is shifting. Or even um, as much as it has for numerous right-wing governments and right-wing global organizations yeah. across the world. And I think something that Paul was saying, uh, which really brings it home, is the way in which so much media, so many politicians are talking about these, these massive amounts, this like massive debt, without any kind of looking outwards or reflection on that at all, or any relativity, um, any comparison to the moment um, or the, the global climate. Because, you know, we know the Tories um, in the UK, we know um, the Liberals in Australia, both like pretty frightening right-wing governments um, in, a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways, especially around immigration and, you know, like, human rights uh, and just, you know, weird things like that, who are undertaking massive infrastructure spent, uh, upping the wages like, across the board, um, who, are, who have better tax rates than us now, um, over, you know, have for ages, um, and just raking in support uh, from, from wider society on that basis. Mm. Uh, and, except they're kind of seem to be using it to... Uh, soft soap uh, 
fascism and to some extent, uh, especially in the UK. Uh, and here yeah. we've got a, a Labour government who are in Parliament saying they're socialists, who are being paraded around by the media as reversing uh, euthanasia um, and the mother of all budgets, doing really nothing even close mm. to these governments that most liberals and left of centre people in New Zealand would look at and say, wow, those people are fucking frightening. Yeah, it's like um, they, yeah, no, honestly, and they are, they're fiscally to the right of what we would consider incredibly conservative governments who would typically be associated with austerity. So it's this funny thing. And you've also got, you know, Labour in the UK who obviously are in opposition, but running to the right of the Tories on, um, on, you know, like spending and public services and stuff like that. I mean, um, the, I, I just read that, they, you know, the Tories are going to bring some parts of the, the railways back under national control. Um, though, you know, with caveats and I don't think we can sort of, I wouldn't be too, um, you know, like prophetic and say, you know, we're seeing some sort of end to neoliberalism. Cause I think it's a lot too, much too old to say, um, but there definitely is a stranger moment. It's a bit of a, like a mini Keynesian kind of moment that we're in at the moment within global capitalism and that labor is, and, and seems the center right are responding to and needing sort of that moment. And the center left seems absolutely unable to, because there's sort of still, um, you know, I think with Grant Robertson, he has an imaginary, um, Ruth Richardson or uh, maybe, you know, um, uh, my gosh, I forgot his name, Bill. What's his name? Bill, the national... Bill, ex- national? Bill Birch? No, and, no the, 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 the Prime Bill Minister. English. Bill English, of course, Bill sorry. English. Sorry. Oh, okay. Wow, oh, it's too late at, at night. But yeah, he's got like Bill English. Actually, no, probably, probably not Bill. Ruth Richardson, let's go with Ruth. Ruth in his head that he wants to live up. He, you know, he can't stand the fact that, that um, the center left are looked at as not good with economics by um, the capitalist class and the business elite. And so that's who he's aiming to kind of, that's the person in his head. That's the person who lives rent free in Grant Robertson's mind. Um, And so that's the person he's always aiming to sort of, he's got some kind of Freudian, you know, uh, insecurity around it, and it's it's leaving him unable to really meet the moment in any way that it requires. Yeah, it's the classic sort of only Nixon could go to China kind of thing. Uh, the idea that only only the right can do certain or can actually move policy to the left because uh, precisely because they're viewed as as kind of the polar opposite of that particular policy. In the same way that Labour maybe was the only one that could have uh, really started to dismantle uh, New Zealand's social democracy. Uh, in the 80s uh, because they, they had that sort of cred with with workers, um, at least for the first while. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the other thing to note about this, this whole discussion about debt, what, what frustrates me is that it's, it, it is theatre, um, not just because our debt is incredibly low, uh, not just because the costs of servicing that debt are incredibly low at the moment, um, just because basically the entire world, as we've said today and so many times during the show has, has already rejected this premise uh, from the World Bank and the IMF, the OECD to, to Joe bloody Biden, uh, one of the, the most fiscally conservative Democrats in, in the party's history, all of that. But also because what do we talk about when we talk about debt? 
Um, I think this budget puts something like, was it $500 million towards the health sector? And I don't mean the, the, the centralization of it, but towards actual health infrastructure, um, which is good. But uh, I believe that the health sector has a deficit of about 2.2 billion, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, and that's just to keep it basically afloat. Um, and so that, that's the real debt. Every dollar of, of taxpayer money that goes into paying down the, the debt, the nominal public debt, is in fact adding to the real debt that we're facing, the, the, the debt that piles up and we don't bother to deal with. Uh, a, a strained, to put it mildly, health sector infrastructure that sorely needs updating, um, climate change, climate resilience, as well as um, uh, basic infrastructure to, to lower emissions. All of that is debt. All of that is stuff that we are pushing on to future generations. Um, we just don't think of it that way. But that, in effect, is what Labour is doing to get the points, to get the, the pats in the head from the Wellington Chamber of Commerce, you know, whatever the business roundtable and whoever they are getting their advice from, to get that, they are essentially offloading the costs of all of these issues that get worse and worse every year onto the rest of us. Um, by which point I assume they will have parachuted out of the beehive and, you know, hopefully be either working in the private sector or perhaps be working in the UN. Um, but, but we really have to think, rethink the way that we think about debt uh, in this country. And I think just generally, um, because, because the public debt is far less important than the actual real debt of not dealing with all these pressing issues. You know, you bring up a good point, Bronco, regarding, um, you know, the, how, how, uh, not, you know, the state, their, um, their saving is our debt. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, it's our deficit. And I think that's a really, um, you know, cogent kind of point. But I, I you know, I think the government is knowingly, and I, and I want to stress this as someone who works in the healthcare sector, putting health under the bus. They're, they're knowingly letting the, the healthcare sy system continue in a state of absolute crisis. It needs $2.2 billion to simply run as is. It's not, it's only gotten 500 million. Um, they've basically said they're willing to sacrifice um, nurses, which is our biggest healthcare workforce and absolutely essential. Um, and that not everybody can be rewarded, you know, um, can, 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 can have a little, uh, you know, gift from COVID or a present as a result of COVID, despite the fact that these are the frontline workers who basically protected us from COVID. But that's beside the point. It's not that, you know, the nurses want to be rewarded, but it's literally that the government is willing to, it's not even put our healthcare system under strain, but to literally risk you know um patients and our healthcare workforce to for some numbers um and and they've signaled that quite clearly you know and i think i think that the government is getting ready to have a very big fight with um the nurses and they're willing to spend political capital on that and i think that that is just an incredible indictment of them and it's uh not going to be fun well the public service yeah. in general right it's not it's not um it's nurses at the moment because they're the ones who yeah. have, have gone through it, but they really are signaling, hey, we're going to come for all of you, so get fucking ready. Um, another point which, you know, we've kind of alluded to is this idea of public debt versus private debt um, and the metaphor often used about running uh, government like a household budget. 
And the IRA, you know, we all know that's bullshit. That's just, um, anyone who's listening to this, um, just ask me on Twitter if you don't know why I think that, um, because I don't want to get into like the, the breakdown of that now. Uh, but the irony of them using that is it, it truly does push the cost onto the citizens of the country. Well, not just the citizens, but everyone living here. Because if the health system doesn't work, that's health cost to each person. If the housing uh, situation is bad, that's rental costs. That's other health costs caused by moldy and wet homes. Maybe, maybe the water infrastructure is fucked. Oh, cool, more health costs. You know, maybe individual water restrictions. Um, and it just continues in that way. So it's not just that they're paying down the debt. Um, as a as a bad move in this in this current economic climate, they are actively deciding that the individuals living in New Zealand are the ones who are going to bear the cost individually for their decisions. Um, and I think that's something that doesn't often get talked about and probably needs to be a lot more, especially in the unpacking uh, yeah. of that metaphor, because it's so consistently used as a public relations tool uh, by successive governments now. Yeah. I mean, if you want evidence for what Carl's saying, um, the level of public debt and private debt is inversely kind of proportional. So the more public debt there is, um, the less private debt there is held by individuals and vice versa. So we see like a complete ballooning of private debt um, as states, um, you know, started to get uh, fiscally conservative. And um, during COVID especially, we've seen an, a, an, another increase in private debt, which is already at historically high levels. So you actually see the cost in real time being offset onto individuals, people like us, um, rather than the state, which actually has the ability to do a whole bunch of things and <laughs> is perfectly poised and supposed like the, the, the institution is supposed to be able to take on that you know, responsibility. But anyways, why not? I, I accept the responsibility. I don't. I'm joking. Oh, thanks, Justine. No, you said it. No taking, no take backs. These. No take backs. Um, okay. Yeah, no, exactly. But I mean, this sort of all goes to uh, what we were saying before in terms of the, the narrative being allowed to uh, coagulate around the idea that we've just accepted this Overton window, right? Nobody's talking about the numbers compared to reality. Nobody's talking about the 2.2 billion deficit in health. That's not in any of the headlines. The headlines are what Labour wants them to be. That just shows what full spectrum dominance they have in the New Zealand political narrative at the moment, right? So, I mean, national, it just seems like a shambles. Any, any kind of attacks they try to mount on Labour just get instantly shut down by the media apparatchiks who otherwise would quite like them, I think, probably because they hate internal strife so much, right? And they're fighting each other. So the gallery doesn't give a shit. And then the Greens voted for the budget, which shuts down a lot of left oppositional options that they could have brought, right? So I thought that was quite disappointing. I haven't gone through the budget like piece by piece enough, but there's plenty there that if you're a left-wing environmental party, you should be mad about. Like Forest and Bird, which is traditionally one of the more um, you know, small C conservative um, environmental organizations in New Zealand said, this isn't the transformation we're looking for. Uh, it's only a third of the funding needed to fight Cody dieback. There's nothing for cameras on fishing boats. It's not good enough. Ecosystems are at breaking point, blah, blah, blah. And that's like, that's not even Greenpeace saying that. That's, mm -hmm. that's a fairly like broad spectrum environmental group saying that. And then, you know, there have been plenty of uh, poverty groups coming out saying this isn't going to really reverse inequality. It's going to help us kind of helping on the margins for a lot of people. So I thought it was a, possibly quite a risky move for the Greens to decide to vote for it. 
and when that's probably out of step of a lot of their voter base if they if you start actually breaking down the budget it's still very early like because labor has such powerful media dominance we probably haven't seen the worst come out about the budget yet i suspect in the next month as the rubber hits the road on some of these actual projects people will be going well hang on where's anything for this i mean housing's the big one right 75 percent of new zealanders want house prices to fall now and there was basically just a continuation for that in the budget. There's no radical restructure. There's no even ideas there. They're purely following the kind of market logic that they're already ideologically wedded to. There's no kind of change in course. And I don't see how that's sustainable. I just want to come in on that, that point of house prices. But um, just before that, on, on this stuff around narratives and the role of government and, and, and all of that, I think there has been some very very sort of small tiny signs that the the kind of change that we're seeing internationally and in, in, in sort of mainstream thinking around this is starting to take hold here so you know um mainstream media are asking you know when they've been interviewing grant robson um, on the back of this budget they are asking him around these things oh well actually you know our public debt is quite low etc cetera, etc cetera. They're, they're probing him on that also um, when the when Labor did announce that uh, the pay freeze for the public sector, National uh, said that they wouldn't do that if they were elected into government. And they've, they've now said that they won't reverse Labor's benefit changes, uh, benefit increases. So, you know, that they, they're seeing the signs that actually these issues are mainstream now. Like, they don't have a real coherent sort of alternative, um, but they're at least sort of trying to trying to patchwork some sort of thing together where um, they can say, no, well, well, we support this, we support this. Um, and so, so they know where that's heading. Also, an interview that Graham Robinson did with Radio New Zealand uh, the day after the budget, he said, um, I think, I don't want to directly quote him, but it was something along the lines of, uh, I want to start a new conversation about debt, um, public debt, which I thought was deeply concerning from his perspective because he <laughs> he has not done actually done that um for <laughs> for a number of years but some like slightly promising because i mean I, I don't think he was really sort of saying it in in the way that like you were saying before branco around how we need to sort of have a different conversation about all of this and the role of government and and so on um i think he was he was more saying well you know we're, we're still reducing it but maybe not quite as quickly as what we were before and actually it's it's not as bad as what national are making out, etc. So he's not fundamentally changing the conversation, but he's just trying to minimise it a little bit. Um, but but nevertheless, I think all of those are little, you know, good signs that that things are changing. Um, just on the house prices thing, though, very quickly is that one of the really interesting things about the budget is the treasury forecast around housing, at least from a kind of, you know, numbers nerd point of view. Um, but house prices are forecast by the end of um, June or July to have increased by 17% in, in the last year. Uh, average, I think that's the average house price. Um, Labor are projecting that in the following year to drop to less than 1%, so 0.9% price increase for houses. And, and most of that um, is coming from their initiatives um, that they put in place uh, you know, in, in the lead up to this budget back in March, I think it was, which was um, extending the bright line test and um, changing interest deductibility rules for, for property investors. 
we haven't seen house prices change in response to that yet. So the, the only numbers that we have for April is basically the exact same trend that we've, that we've had for the last six to 12 months. Um, so that's a very ambitious forecast. Um, if I was David Seymour, I would probably say that, what, what are they, what was he calling it? Uh, all those things. Um, the heroic assumption. Heroic assumption. That's it. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, so that's going to be really interesting to see how this, how this plays out. Um, over the next couple of months and you know what sort of pressure they come under if things don't quite go according to plan in the next sort of three to six months yeah i completely agree paul there's been very little to signal that um those changes have made any sort of i mean i think um there's been some sort of um hints of a little bit of a slowdown but because it was already like how the the the, the incredible pace of the market, you know, it really was um, at like just full speed and accelerating at such a pace that even a little slowdown isn't going to reduce it to the extent that this for- treasury is forecasting. So I find that a really interesting prog- um, projection. It doesn't seem to be based on very much. Um, and I would really be surprised if that happened just based on those changes that they've made. Um And I think that actually the housing crisis is what makes these numbers small fish in a way. Um, You know, the housing crisis has so vastly impacted sort of like just New Zealand social fabric um, that uh, in any of the supposedly large numbers we're throwing around with the budget, for instance, with the, um, the, you know, benefit increase, the small increases to student allowance, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to make, you know, really very little difference um, because of how astronomically, um, you know, huge house, housing costs are, um, rental costs are. So um, to not see a rent cap, you know, I mean, that's the thing we need to talk about next, I think. Um, inter- and I say we, I mean, like the left has to campaign on really hard next because I think all of this will be for nothing. And I do think it's a good thing that they've increased, you know, benefits, though I don't think it goes far, uh, far enough, obviously. I think we all kind of would share that. But, um, you know, that this is going to be swallowed up. This is going to be a landlord subsidy unless there's, um, you know, significant steps taken to ensure that they can't. So that'll be interesting. There's a lesson here from from what you guys are saying, which is for people who consume the news, who want to understand what's going on, um, you will be able to get a lot of the very basic facts about what is happening on any given day, particularly something like the budget from the mainstream news. But if you really want to put something into context and really understand what it means, you really have to go to those um, groups like Greenpeace, like Forest and Bird even, uh, like uh, AAAP, like the Child Poverty Action Group, um, who kind of put this stuff into context. For example, CPAC pointed out that, that you know, they did their own modeling and found that the amount um, that, that people would need per week um, was, you know, if they were on the benefit, was far bigger, uh, almost double than what um, uh, Labor has actually offered uh, to basically be able to stay above the poverty line. And beyond that, of course, they noted that that Labor conspicuously did not remove some of those benefit sanctions that the um, the welfare uh, working group um, uh, recommended that they got rid of, get rid of, and and uh, several other other major things. Um, so I think it's really important to note, and and I think this as well is why I personally, speaking for myself only, have found it so frustrating the way that this has been portrayed in the media, this budget, uh, as, as like someone was saying before, the, the uh, repudiation 
of Ruth Richardson's ideology and the kind of the, the fixing of what has happened since the mother of all budgets. So this is now a new day has begun and this is a radical change. Whereas in reality, to me, um, we actually look at, compare those two documents. To me, this is um, very much in line with the vision of Ruth Richardson. This is a, a much, this is probably the kind of most left-wing version that you can get, the most left that you can go within the framework that Ruth Richardson and her allies set up back in 1991. We have to remember what the mother of all budgets was. It was basically going to complete what David Lange and Labour had started back in the 80s, which was they had dismantled all the various controls in the economy and all the regulations, done massive sell-offs of state assets, but they hadn't touched the welfare system, which was just as well because tons of people lost their jobs and it was pretty hard going for a lot of people. Ruth Richardson wanted to get rid of that. Um, but, but her goal wasn't just to do merciless, horrible cuts to welfare, which, which she did. The other thing she wanted to do, what she aimed to do with this budget was to redefine people's relationship to the government and what the role of the government was in the economy and to shrink the size of government. Um, and so she didn't just go after welfare. She went after the old age pension system. She went after uh, ACC. She, uh, well, it wasn't in the budget, but, but kind of set in motion um, the commercialization of healthcare uh, and, and a whole host of other things. Um, it was a very broad range of things. Tertiary education as well was a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically to set in place this idea that Government surpluses were the most important thing, much more important than people. Um, and secondly, that that there was too much welfare dependency in New Zealand, that, that people just weren't working, not because of all these terrible reforms that had <laughs> pushed people out of work over the past number of years, but no, no, it was because people were just lazy and they were just sitting on a doll and doing nothing. And they had to be, they had to be changed. And if you look at this budget, I mean, we're basically still in that framework, again, in a much more kinder a much more kinder version of that, a much more left-wing version of that. Um, but basically it's the same thing. Labor obviously still believe that, that welfare is a kind of moral blight on society and that people are just sitting on it and need to get, get off it, which, which is why they've kept these sanctions. And Labor still believe that at the end of the day, keeping that debt low is, and, and, and getting to surpluses is the most important thing you could possibly do. Uh, we'll throw a few things in here for beneficiaries will lift the minimum wage. That's great. I, I support all that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it has not, this budget has not fundamentally reshaped how New Zealanders think about politics, how New Zealanders think about the government, what the government should be able to do, uh, both in society and the economy. None of that, everything is in place uh, as, as Ruth Richardson left it uh, when she was removed the government. So um that, that's why I find this, this whole rhetoric right now happening where, you know, wow, Labour has now returned to its socialist roots and all the Labour MPs are in Parliament saying, well, I'm a socialist. Well, I'm a socialist. Oh, I'm a socialist too. I find that very, very frustrating um, because this is not really how a socialist government uh, typically operates. Um, not even close either, right? Um, you know, it's it kind of entirely counter to. And I think, you know... Um, I think it was Paul. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it reduces yeah. the size of the state over time. So it's kind yeah. of like 
the, the inverse of socialism. Exactly. Um, alongside the pay freeze, you know, the known operational underspend, the known infrastructure underspend, um, and the effects that we can pretty, pretty easily uh, extrapolate into people moving out of the public service into the private sector, the need of the public service to give up uh, different services to the private sector as you know, their buildings literally rot um, as they cannot afford staff, um, maybe alongside some of the centralization stuff um, with the uh, new way they're going to do health. That speaks to me that this is a continuation of, at least structurally, um, regardless of what you tack on to it in the way of welfare. Uh, and, and so to see it, yeah, I, I, I don't actually know why, but people have been pretty angry with me for some of these takes around um, the idea that the outcomes of what labor are doing could end up being worse than the mother of all budgets. And I totally understand the way that everything was, was rewritten in, in terms of the welfare state, yada, yada, and, and Rogernomics, yada, yada, yada. But relative to the rest of the world, at that time and at this time, what labor is doing now in the face of uh, this pandemic, uh, very likely economic crashes and climate change, the outcomes are gonna be significantly, significantly worse. And I just can't, I can't find any other way to extrapolate that unless there's something far different done. And to see that, like just swallowed wholesale by the media, that this framing of it um, being revenge on Ruth Richardson um, and, and just buying into the, to, to the extent that they called Ruth Richardson up to get a pull quote from her. Uh, and then talking about Red Robbo unironically um, and the way that, uh, you know, Labour or Socialists now and they're a real Labour Party again, just makes me sick. Like, how do you do that? How, as, as, a, as a serious political analyst or reporter, how do you do that? So I, th I think we're discussing the difference between sort of inaction, conscious inaction, which is what I think what we're seeing from Labour right now, uh, and versus like genuine purposeful cruelty, which is basically what was happening from from the eighties to the uh, the early nineties, and especially under under Richardson, which is, I mean, that the mother of all budgets was the uh, the most extreme policy of, of essentially assault on the, on the welfare system in the Western world, um, arguably. Maybe there's, there's others, but I, I think when you compare where New Zealand was to, to, to where it ended up, uh, th this was a much more radical thing than happened anywhere else, where it happened sort of gradually, and the welfare system wasn't maybe quite as generous. The thing is, um, though, that 30 years later, we're still here. Um, and, and arguably, 30 years later, with the wrong steps, we are not here this time. The, the, as you say, the, the tragedy is that the great victory of progressivism that this is being painted as is a partial reversal, a partial, partial reversal of what happened 30 years ago. And that is being held up as a triumph. And it is, it is frustrating because look, I think this should be praised. I, I think it's very, very, again, shameful that it took this long. But look, yes, it does deserve praise for the fact that they eventually did do it, sure. But giving it the sort of unconditional, over-the-top lauding that it's receiving right now, 
there's no incentive uh, for them to, to go any further than this because they've realized, well, we've now captured public opinion. Everyone's heard that we've done this incredibly transformational thing. And it, it reminds me very much of what's happening in the US right now, um, where basically Joe Biden, by for one, one bill really, setting aside deficit concerns and spending big on a, on a one-off emergency package, is is being hailed as you know the, the savior of the western world such that he now feels free to sort of go back to deficit concerns to to get rid of a bunch of his promises and and that's basically what labor has done labor has in a, in a very strange way by spending this money on the benefit increases it has essentially bought itself the uh ability to not really do anything uh for the next you know, two years or longer, because they can always point to this and say, well, you know, hey, we did this thing. You wanted this. You wanted higher benefit rates. We did it. So, you know, you can't complain anymore. And that that is really uh, distressing to me, given given everything that that, that remains to be solved in Western uh, civilization today. I think it's important to see these, like the shrinking of the state and, you know, um, the accumulation of working class wealth, the evaporation of working class wealth and the accumulation of wealth at the very top of society, this all has a cumulative effect, right? So we can talk about it 30 years ago and obviously the mother of all budgets was incredibly, you know, in a cruel and punishing budget and, um, and, and as you said, Branko, like incredibly like radical um, co- comparatively. The fact that 30 years later we're still operating in that paradigm, it's not as though, I think sometimes people think of um, politics as sort of like, a swing, you know, and you swing this way and then you swing that way and it's all this delicate balancing act. But, but it's actually so off balance in that way and that even inaction now is is radical in the sense of like these changes have had this cumulative effect and these problems have been building for such a long time. It feels that you come to a point where you can't avoid where it's going, you know? Um, and I think... Um, you know, I think that the the urgency and the, um, is correct to feel that there needs, you know, that's that's why the left says we need radical change. It's not because we're just radicals and we, I mean, want to tear it all down and build a, a you know a beautiful good world. Of course, we do want that, but it's actually the urgency comes from that cumulativeness. You know, you reach a point where the, not much can give, and you know, I think we are very fast. Have I mean, I think COVID's accelerated that. You know. To a, to a point, um, it really put a, you know, I, I, I think we have had a K-shaped recovery and I think um, a, a vast majority of people, working people in New Zealand have really taken a hit from COVID in ways that we don't really talk about actually. Um, but um, the housing crisis is obviously the crux of it, right? Um, and and um, so, uh, yeah, that inaction in that case is a very, very defiant and conscious act to continue to, um, to, you know, this, this sort of acceleration into crisis, really. Um, yeah, economic and ecological kind of <laughs> degradation. It doesn't sound like a great um, trajectory to be on, but it is the one we are on. And we do need to uh, raise our expectations because, yeah, I mean, I think the, the narrative around it being the reversal of euthanasia or the, the, the welfare cuts is, is insulting given that none of this accounts for any of like the, I mean, when we're talking about like how high welfare is, is it, is it, these numbers don't seem to mean anything. Um, you know, what should, um, 
how much should welfare should welfare should welfare be enough to feed you and your family? If the answer is yes, then we haven't reversed anything. <laughs> There's been not absolutely nothing done. You know what I mean? Like you know, like it'll it's it's a plaster. It's it's nothing more than um you know palliative care for those who are really impoverished and um unemployed people. So uh, yeah, I just I think that it's it's insulting. Because ideally, um, no, not ideally, just as a base level, you know, I mean, welfare should be able to provide the basics of life. And at the moment, it doesn't. And so that's out of whack. And if we're not talking about that, we're not having a real conversation about the social contract, right? Well, but I, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, Labour are a socialist party now. Um, after, yeah. after decades, uh, they've gone back to... And always were somehow as well, despite not <laughs> mentioning it once in the house for no, what, really, 15 it's years. Quite, it's really personally offensive to me. And I, and, I, and I don't mean to make it like I'm personally victimized by the Labour Party. But I, I feel that I am. In some I fucking am. Yeah. I'm fucking personally victimized. Well, by just to be clear, day. what we're talking about is uh, the, the several uh, Labour MPs, like fairly low down Labour MPs, but still, um, after the budget was released, uh, it started with uh, Kieran McNulty. Uh, I, I assume that's how you, I honestly, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. I assume that's how you pronounce McEnulty. McEnulty. Oh, it's too bad because I do. I was hoping he would just sound exactly like the um, the detective in The Wire, but uh, that that is that's upsetting. Well, okay. Well, he uh, responded to a. Uh, uh, an attack from from National MP David Bennett, who called him a communist, uh, and then he was made to withdraw it. And someone else called him a socialist, and he and he said, in a, in a you know, which generally a kind of a cool moment. He said, "Hey, you know what? I am a socialist. Yeah, that's right." And and the people of Wairapa, they they elected a socialist to be their MP, uh, and I'm proud of it. Great. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, and and then a whole bunch of other. Labour MPs, uh, pictures basically came out and said, oh, I'm also a socialist, uh, hooray comrade. Um, so there, there's a, there's something, I guess, optimistic in the fact that that word is kind of being reclaimed and destigmatized. However, uh, at the same time, it doesn't really mean that much if at the end of the day, you, you don't really govern <laughs> any differently whatsoever. I think the term you're looking for is co-opted, Franco. Yeah. But anyway, so that's for people who are not familiar with this whole thing. Uh, yeah, that's right, Carlton. Uh, people who are not f- super familiar with all this, this is the, the, the background of what we are currently discussing. You know, I could deal with the Labour backbenchers describing themselves as socialist um, because I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. Um, you know, you don't, you don't have any real power. But it was when Jacinda referred to herself as a democratic socialist, now that was a step too far for me because I could buy that a backbencher might have little more, you know, radical opinions that they just keep to themselves. But Jacinda, no, she had no right. She, where does she get off? I'm, I'm um, on board with all of your frustration about this. Um, I sympathise with it. Um, but maybe one, one sort of silver lining is that the fact that Labour MPs and Jacinda Ardern are willing to identify themselves as socialists, I think, has you know, regardless of whether we agree with with uh, them or not, um, and regardless of whether they're actually, um, you know, putting in place socialist policies, which of, of course they're not. Uh, but they, the fact that they don't see it as much of a threat as what they used to, and and then and they don't instantly sort of defend themselves against those charges, um, I think is kind of a sign that mm. you know that there is 
this sort of generational shift that's happening in this kind of an embrace of democratic socialist politics that's happening over overseas is is sort of starting to um, flow through here. One can hope. Um, mm. Yeah, but but I think just more broadly with this budget, um, just been listening to all of you and kind of distilling my thoughts as well. I do have this kind of sense of conflict, right? Because like you're saying, Franco, it it doesn't undo the the structural the the radical like you were saying, Justine, changes that the mother of all budgets brought in. Um, but it does alleviate some of that pain and that and that hurt that people feel on a day-to-day basis. And I think whilst I don't necessarily think that we should praise the Labour Party for that, because I don't actually think it's their doing. It's like we we're talking about before, it's those campaigners that have fought for this change. They they're the ones that deserve the praise for for pushing this to happen. Um, even though it's not as far as um, what we need and, and what they've advocated for. Uh, but it still does alleviate some of that hurt. And that is that is real. That's going to impact people's lives. And I think that's really, that's really important. And it's, you know, we can, we can be glad about that. Um, and at the same time, we can still criticize the direction of, of this Labour government, I think. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's difficult when, when they, you know, we are criticizing them on an almost daily basis and then they go and do something like this and it's like, okay, that's good. But you know, it's, Sometimes it is hard to wrestle with those, um, with those feelings. Eh? I, I absolutely agree, um, and I think that that is the nuance necessary. You know, um, in that we, I didn't think that they would would do this, um, and it will alleviate some of um, the hardship, and it is a good thing. Um, uh, and I think we can hold those two things to be true, right? Um, it's just that if we take it, I think the the danger. Um, the danger lies for the left is to take it um, as a we can cool, you know, we can that's that, you know, job well done, folks, let's pack it up and go home. And I think, um, you know, we should be anxious about that because that does happen, you know, where you see the, the left demobilizing um, during sort of the center left government. Um, the Obama era is probably the biggest and, you know, most important example of that so um i totally agree with you um and i but i think um i think the lesson is to keep the pressure on rather than breathe a sigh of relief they will listen to you because yeah um all these shifts we're seeing is a result of um organizing and um some of the you know political up you know like the impact of uh, of um, socialists, leftists around the world. I mean, so, you know, the thing that gets me, I guess, in, in Aotearoa is, you know, um, we don't, we still don't have that pressure from the left. And that's really, um, you know, we have, um, and I think that's um, talking back to the Green Party voting for the budget. You know, I think that's really missing is uh, just the left opposition. Um, and, I, and I mean that in the truest sense of the word, like a left opposition. Um, and the Green Party just isn't really fulfilling that role. And that does worry me still. It, can, it worries me. It has worried me and it continues to worry me just because I think that that is really necessary to continue to keep that pressure on. Um, and, you know, something like not voting for the budget was a really ge- a good opportunity to do so, even if it was unpopular, you know. Um, it, it's just uh, we, we sort of just need that and it's not there. And, um, yeah, I think uh, our political discourse is sort of worse off for it. Mm. Yeah, certainly it helps to have uh, people in Parliament who are 
willing to take the unpopular position. Uh, so <laughs> whether you agree with him or not, I think it's safe to say a lot of us here disagree with him on a whole heap of things. One of the great things about Winston Peters as a politician purely was the fact that he was willing to uh, constantly take very unpopular stances um, and, and just be a, a fly in the ointment, the perennial fly in the ointment, uh, for the sake of getting his, his political goals um, uh, over the line. And, and, you know, he succeeded at that. We don't have to like a lot of those. Uh, most of them were quite bad, but, uh, but it worked for him. Um, I think the other side of this coin is, is as we were talking about the, the kind of shift uh, politically around the world on the right um, and how national quite hasn't, hasn't gotten there on our side. You know, I, I think it might be a matter of time. I don't know, but we may see national eventually kind of getting there. Uh, they haven't now. They've, they've sort of jumped from one international right-wing bugbear to the next, you know, whether it's, wokeness or the, the migration pact and now they you know they had this whole period just before this where they were trying to race bait their way into uh higher poll numbers which which failed miserably um which is very heartening to see um but you know they're trying different things um and it may be only a matter of time before they realize hey wait a minute why don't we look at what the uh the tories in the uk are doing uh or what the liberals in australia are doing and and actually beat Labor at their own game. Monkeys and typewriters, um, eh? Uh, yeah, and, and well, we know that they can because we know, uh, remember, you know, a few months back when National actually took a more progressive position on um, payments to workers who had to, to go home uh, uh, in, in, if they were possible uh, COVID threats. Um, they said, no, we should pay them the full wage because Labor wasn't willing to go that far. Um, so, you know, look, I, I never want to underestimate the National Party's uh, 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 inability to, to, to see where the wind is blowing and to change. Um, but that's also a pretty ridiculous bet to make because people would have said the same thing about the Tories, about the Liberals in Australia, about hell, about even Joe Biden and all these people kind of realize reality. And so for Labour, it becomes a question of, you know, how willing are you to, to, how committed are you to sticking to this way outdated paradigm that is not only not popular, but doesn't even work for any of the problems that we're facing right now. How committed are you? Are you willing to just stick to it, even if National decides to upflank you on that? Um, and I mean, the worst part is that maybe a lesson that they have to learn uh, the hard way, which is a very unfortunate thing for the rest of us. I hope that does not happen. I hope that they come to their senses before that happens. But um, I, mean, I think that is the danger for them. People have been saying that for ages, right? That national, when is national going to try some form of right populism and do do something? We said it before the last election, right? We yeah, said it, exactly. Yeah. Well, they were they were started to make noises when they appointed Andrew Bailey as uh, revenue spokes, as alongside having a finance spokesperson, and that sort of seemed like they were trying to do a sort of two track attack thing. But he's been the most traditionally right wing person about this budget. Like he's had the most boring lines coming out saying, oh, it's ballooning debt. We won't be able to pay any of this back. And then because Labour has full-scale capture of the media, whoever he's talking to says, well, then what would you cut? And he can't say anything, obviously. <laughs> national is incoherent. So it just makes him look like a real idiot. So, yeah. I mean, it seems like even when they do try, they 
don't have the courage of their convictions at the moment. But it's it's a very low chance. But like I said, it's also it's a it's a pretty major gamble to make to just leave yourself open, especially after seeing it happen everywhere else in the world. Even even with the bloody Republican Party, the most extreme right wing force uh, in the in the developed world. Um, but yeah, you're right. That at the moment, they seem completely lost in the woods uh, <laughs> and, and show no sign of, of possibly changing. So hey, we'll see. Just about coming up to the end there, folks, but did you have any final uh, points that you wanted to add, Paul? No, I mean, I think we've, I think we've covered the, the budget quite well. I think we've talked like a lot of the sort of high-level stuff and haven't really gone into the nitty-gritty of, of the budget and um you know even even with the benefits um and sort of where like where and why they aren't sort of up to scratch um but definitely um if, you, if you're out there and listening check out um you know the stuff in the media that that child poverty action group and, and AAAP have put out um you know sort of doing some really good analysis on um the, the fact that yep benefit increases are welcome but here's where it's not you know up up to the right scratch um because that's one thing that yeah we probably didn't didn't quite get to tonight. Um, and then of course this you know there's always so much in the budget right and there's and there's so limited time. So um, I'm sure there'll be lots of other people talking about it um, over the over the coming days and weeks. I wanted to ask like a can of worms question, but I was going to ask what what is in the budget that no one's been talking about that's interesting to you, Paul? Oh gosh, um, new font perhaps for the uh, budget yeah. paper. <laughs> An exciting new um, uh, Times New Roman variant. No, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I will just come back to like the the things that I tend to look at is like what's the what's the long term like um, projection of like what what's the what's the state of the economy going to be like in you know fifteen twenty years um, and you know if if you actually look out the the last year that the fiscal um, strategy model goes out to is 2035 and the economy is still growing at a similar rate um, you know debt's been paid down like in small increments every year um, we're getting closer and closer and there's going to be you know we'll have a government surplus in sort of five years time and then that, that'll sort of keep going out so that the structure is like the same as as you know the the same neoliberal orthodox structure that we've had fiscally um, for 30, 40 years. So, you know, if we don't change that, then we're not actually going to fix a lot of these big issues that we're yeah. talking about around housing, around health and, and, and the well-being of our societies because we're just fixated with keeping the size of the state low, you know, growing, you know, the economy, not solving inequality. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, it, that does get some focus, but I guess like in terms of the, the broader kind of fiscal view, like that's you know where i think that like in in new zealand in particular it'd be great if like we had sort of more economists looking at that kind of long-term um, yeah. picture and, and what we need to change all right well thanks for joining us uh paul for our 100th episode uh and thanks to all my co-hosts as well for for popping along so we could all be on the call together uh to celebrate this milestone if you've enjoyed this, uh, give us a share, um, send it to your friends, send it to your family, go on to Patreon, uh, throw us a few dollars, uh, one of 200.nz. Um, I think we've actually got some modeling up there from Paul. 
um, mathematical modeling. Um, so you know it's good. Uh, and, and maybe we will have some more in future. Um, mm. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, um, and anywhere else you might find us. Uh, we really value you all as an audience. Um, and thank you for all your support. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your